In the uh, documentary series, American Gospel, J.D. Greer is quoted as saying, the goal of a lecture is that you leave with more information. The goal of a motivational speech is that you leave with action steps. Nothing wrong with information and action steps, but it goes on to say the goal of a gospel sermon is that you leave worshiping. We just worshiped, but we're not done yet. As my brother Steve Camp says, the next half of our worship is wordship. We're going to worship God by giving his word preeminence. So pray with me. God, just as a brother of mine often prays before he comes forward and attempts to rightly divide your word, to cut it straight. Alistair says, uh, and calls out to you, and I, and I call out the same thing, begging you, God, teach us what we know not. Give us what we have not. And make us what we are not. For your glory. Christ's reward, and do this not in our own strength, but by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside each of your blood-bought children. Amen. As mentioned, we are finishing up our Back to the Basics series, entitled The Five Solas, Timeless Truths for Today's Church. And if this is your first time here for this series, you're at the end, I'm going to give you a quick Recap, blistering fast. Uh, The first one that was covered, Stephen covered four weeks ago, Solus Christus. There's a lot of Latin, by the way. You're going to learn a bunch of Latin. Solus Christus means Christ alone. Solus uh, is like solo. You sing a solo. You sing it by yourself. A lot of the words we get today in our English come from the Latin. And we see this in the passage. Jesus answered and said, I am the way. Not a way, not one of many ways. He said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Isaiah 43, he says the same thing. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. There is no other way. There is only one Savior. And that was in response to the Roman Catholicism teaching of other ways, other mediators. Other, sometimes referred to as Mary, even the co-redemptrix of heaven. And we see this, that they, it is still today, to this point, of intercessory uh, of the clergy through confession. Prayers to the saints that you can pray to them and they will then go and mediate before you and go to heaven and go to God the Father and pray. And then Mary, her title still to this day is the Queen of Heaven. We say, well, we don't have that. We don't, we don't do that. Why do we need Solus Christus? And as Stephen pointed out, it's because Tim, uh, Paul Tripp reminds us that we have many functional saviors. It's anything in our lives which we expect to rescue us, to bring us some kind of, provide some kind of peace. You know you have a functional savior when you get disappointed over something. That it didn't come through, it didn't fall through. I had expectations that it could not meet. Wives, your man makes a great husband, he makes a terrible savior. Do not say amen. <laughs> or go ahead. Because it's true. Amen. It's true. We make terrible saviors. That is a functional savior. Christ alone. Christ alone. And then Chris covered Sola Scriptura, right? Scripture alone. And we saw this in, in one of the most well-known New Testament passages, passages on, on the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable. And it tells us all the things that it's profitable. And then in verse 17, why? That the man of God may be complete, 
complete. That word is also mature, perfected, being perfected. This is sanctification, equipped for every good work. If the scripture does that, why do I need anything else? It does that. And so the Roman Catholic Church teaches, or you can also, if you wanted to, just read all of Psalm 119, which Chris did while we were here. And if you aren't, if, you, if your estimation of God's word uh, is not elevated after reading all of Psalm 119, then read it again. Because it talks about how great it is. And, and, the, and the Roman Catholicism teaches, even to this day, that the seat of their authority is a tri-legged stool. If you know anything about three-legged stools, is they are great for balancing. They never wobble. All three. It's like a tripod. It's always balanced. But it makes for terrible church authority when you put the Bible with the Apocrypha on the same level with church tradition. That if it's lasted long enough, even if the Bible doesn't say, even if the Bible goes against it, then it's on the same level. Or the magisterium, which is the Pope and the bishops. When the Pope speaks to this day ex cathedra from the seat of Rome, it is as if his words are infallible. That's where they put their authority. So well, we don't do that. What do, why do we need sola scriptura, scripture alone? Because anything which trumps, which overrides scripture as our ultimate authority is threatening sola scriptura. Experiences, feelings, anything outside the Bible, these are not bad things. God gave us these things. But if these things are more, carry more weight than Scripture, then we ourselves are in danger of that. And then last week, Matt covered Sola Dea Gloria, God's glory alone. And we see, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. He repeats it later on in Isaiah 48:11, For my own sake. For my sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Someone once said, I think it was Spurgeon, and if it wasn't, you should just always say it's Spurgeon because he said a lot of good stuff. He said, the sovereignty of God is not just that he does what he pleases, that whatever pleases him, he does. For my own sake, I do it. That's the glory of God. Roman Catholicism teaches that God grants special favors, glory, to others. And we see that in worship of angels, canonizing of saints, or veneration of Mary. If you ask them what veneration means, it sounds a lot like worship. It just won't say it's worship. Do we do that? A.W. Tozer said, idolatry is the worship of anything that is not God. And the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. When I think less of God than he is, I'm in danger of giving glory to something that isn't God. John Calvin stated that the human heart is an idle factory. Yeah, I am in danger of not giving God the glory that he is due. Which is why Matt talked about last week of continuing to reform. The, the Latin of the Reformation, the battle cry of the Reformation was Semper Reformanda. I mean, like more Latin. I thought we you know, had enough with the, with the solas. But you know this already. I mean, Semper Fi, right? Any Marines here? There you go. Semper Fi. You know Semper Fi. Always faithful, right? And so Semper Reformanda is always reforming, or as Matt put it, continually 
to reform. And we need to do this by asking ourselves, how can we honor God better? We, we, can, we can honor God better than we currently are, can't we? And the way we answer that question is by looking at where do we need to reform back to God's word. Because what happens is we keep attaching stuff that is extra biblical. Not bad. It's good, but it's not great. And after a while, we get all the good and we've left the great. So we have to constantly be reforming back to God's word. So they gave me the task then of being able to finish up the series by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation according to God. Now, when I first got this, I was thrilled. I get to preach for the first time ever on grace and faith. And in contrast to all that we we know about everything, grace and faith are some things that we, we know more about than anything else. Grace and faith. And I... It's like you can't be a Christian without knowing something of grace and faith. And I'm thrilled and think I get to preach on grace and faith because everybody knows something about grace and faith. Oh, snap. I'm going to preach on something that all of you know more than I know. Together, collectively, what could I possibly teach you? I'd rather have them giving me something from Habakkuk for two reasons. Why? Because... Most of us have never read Habakkuk, and two, we can't even pronounce it correctly most of the time. Right? We don't even know where it is, and now I've got to preach on something that everybody knows about. And this is the danger, is that the problem isn't that we, don't know, we, that we know nothing, but we, that we know just enough. We know enough to say, I'm good. I, I, grace, free gift. Faith, it's an anchor. Got it. It's like, it's like filling up your plate on the croutons at the all-you-can-eat salad buffet and never getting to the good stuff at the end. And that's what we, I often do in my Christian faith. In fact, for, for my beginning time, I had a pastor who taught nothing but grace. But it was the crouton grace. It wasn't all the good stuff at the end. And I just stayed there. And I never grew beyond that. So what we want to look at is understanding that familiarity, you've heard, breeds contempt. It's like, but I don't have contempt for grace. I love grace. I don't have contempt for faith. I love the Christian faith. But maybe, it, if not contempt, maybe complacency. Maybe we've just become numb. We, we hear it, and all of a sudden we zone out, which is why I'm giving you all the visuals. In fact, the notes that you have, there is no fill in the blank. That's just a cheat sheet. You can just put that away and just worship. And, and allow the word of God to just permeate right now and get you to appreciate the grace and the faith that we have in Christ. So we want to look at Roman Catholicism, which many times is often accused of being against grace. And it is not anti-grace. The Roman Catholicism actually teaches that you are saved by grace, but it is grace plus merit. And they're not against faith, saving faith. It is faith plus works. And in fact, it's often called the plus religion. And so in Protestantism, we have a tendency to look at it as grace minus works. We're almost anti-works. If you are against works, you, you are going to be offended by this message. I guarantee you. And if it's not minus works, it's grace versus works. Right? They're working against each other somehow. This message, if you leave with nothing else, this is the main point of my message, is grace works. 
If you're against grace, you're also going to be offended by this message. I'm a weak, uh, an equal offender opportunist. Try to offend as many people as possible with the word of God. You will be offended if you are against grace, and you will be offended if you are against works, because grace works. That's my message. Now, you heard that and you think, well, wait a minute, I, I might be able to agree with that if by it you mean grace works. But if you mean grace works, then I'm not for that. And other, others of you are thinking, I don't know what he's talking about. So let's find out which one I mean. Looking at sola gratia, or sometimes gratia or gratius, grace alone. When you think of the word grace, what comes to mind? All right, often, what we're taught is that it is a free gift. It's a free gift. Look, Daddy, I made you a present, Daddy. I wrapped it all by myself. And I'm giving this to you, Daddy, because you're a great Daddy, right? And the word for, for grace is awe. Awe. Isn't that sweet? It's a free gift. And, and it's true. But there's more to it than that. Quote from Jerry Bridges says, Grace is God reaching down. That word reaching down is condescension. Condescending. We don't like to be condescended to. God reaching down to people who are in rebellion against him. Free gift I like. Now you're calling me a rebel? And God has to condescend to me? John Stott said something similar. Grace is love that cares and stoops. Down, condescends, reaches down, and rescues. Now I need rescuing. I'm a rebel, and I, need, I don't need rescuing. I'm doing just fine. This is where grace starts to offend. The quote I really like is Michael Horton says, In grace, God gives us nothing less than himself. Grace, then, is not a third thing, a substance, mediating between God and sinners, almost like a fourth person of the Trinity, right? That grace saves us. In fact, the world loves that kind of free gift. If you keep it apart from Christ. But what he goes on to say, but, this is grace, but is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. Now you are offending me. That I need to be rescued. I need to be redeemed. I need to be ransomed. This is grace. When you think of grace, it is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. And for that, we see the acronym GRACE. And most of the time I don't like acronyms because we try to jam one word in there just to get the whole word spelled. But this one's actually pretty good and pretty biblical. In his book, Transforming Grace, Jerry Bridges uses this one. And he says that grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. It's God's righteousness. Sometimes it is people do the acronym, it's God's riches. And that is true as well. We do need God's, we do get God's riches when you read in Ephesians, all of that God has stored up for heaven for us. But before we get his riches, we need his righteousness. And it says that it is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. It came at a high price. And so keep that in mind. God's riches, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. My first point is this, grace offends. We sang, "'Twas grace that first taught me to fear." An amazing grace. That, that grace taught me to fear? That's an offending message. And what I want to, to, us to do is to open up the idea 
that grace is not just this free gift. It is more than that. It is an offending grace. And we get this by going to a beloved place, right? The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, who doesn't love? If you've, if you've not read them, I encourage you to do so. Start with Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. And in there, the Pevensey children are transported back to a magical place with talking animals, because that's where talking animals exist, in magical places. And they're having tea with the, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver because they're English. And they're having this conversation about this character named Aslan. They discover Aslan's not a man, but that he's a lion. And Lucy says, well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? And then comes our favorite line of the whole book series, which, I, spoiler alert, this is it. Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. This idea that Christ is not a tame lion. He is a powerful lion, but he is good. And that is grace, that we think about grace as a as this lion. And, and in the movie series, after Lucy has been gone for, I think it's in the second one, where she's been gone for a while, she goes up to Aslan, and she nuzzles in him and wrestles him to a ground like a giant golden retriever. And we see grace as being soft and cuddly. And this is how the world, other religions, see our grace, as weak. You people don't even try. It's just let go and let God. We have a weak grace in their mind of an easy way out. Oh, I don't have to do that. I'm covered by grace. Maybe our grace is not as accurate of that strong and powerful Jesus Christ in redeeming action as it needs to be. Instead, if you're going to think of it as a line, think of it like this one. Where you are that one down in the bottom, you can't see it uh, so clearly, but there's a man down there who's dropped his weapon because the weapon is of no effect on this grace. And the lion is in midair with jaws and claws barred, ready to pounce. This is the grace, grace that is terrifying, grace that first taught me to fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we do not fear God apart from Christ, we have no need of being rescued. But grace is also relentless. It keeps pursuing us. This, this lion will not be stopped just by holding your arm out against him. He'll eat that and then go for the rest of you. Grace is also irresistible. It is the eye in tulip of the Reformation, talking about the five points of what's been called the five points of Calvinism. Irresistible grace. And I'm not talking about like a piece of dessert you can't resist, but talking about something that cannot resist you. It is coming after you again and again and again. Irresistible grace, awful grace, grace that is full of awe. And grace that is offensive. It offends something in us. And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. For the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, that is, Jesus Christ in redeeming action. A stumbling block, or as some translations say, a rock of offense. It trips us. We fall over it, face down. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block and folly to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles, it was like just intellectual absurdity. That offends me that you would even say that, that that's the best you got. 
a crucified Savior. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that he is to us and the wisdom of God. So going back to why would I have Paul read Daniel 4 about Nebuchadnezzar? Why not go to Ephesians 2? Because you already know Ephesians 2. You learned it in Awana. You know it by heart. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith that not of ourselves it is a gift of God. Right? Not of works lest any man should boast. We know that so well, almost too well. But here we read about a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. When the, the word grace wasn't used at all in that entire chapter. But did you see the grace of God? Maybe at the end, where we read, at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar says, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned. Did he deserve that? No, absolutely not. That was God's righteous favor coming upon this pagan king. Could have left him in his psychotic break out in the back 40, masticating grass. But he returned his mind. My reason returned to me. It's the same phrase that's used in the Greek. When we, when we translate the Old Testament into Greek, it's the same words used in the prodigal son. When the prodigal son says, I came to my senses, his mind was brought back to him. He started to think again, clearly. And he says, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, the splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me again. I returned back to the position where others looked to me. He was king again. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. It's like the end of Job, where everything he lost is returned, and it is doubled and quadrupled and tenfold. That's grace. But then, that's not the end. Listen to the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That is grace. Praise God that he humbles us when we walk in pride. Praise God he did that for Nebuchadnezzar, or he would have died a pagan king. Grace is when we are humbled. You see it in in James chapter 4. We'll go back to James later, but for right now, looking at just this section, verse 5. He says, do you not suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That's the spirit of the living God dwelling in each of his blood-bought children. But he gives more grace. Praise God for that. Grace doesn't just save us. Grace is The more grace is that it also sanctifies us. It will carry us home and it will glorify us. That we think of grace just as being saved from hell. But it is more than that. That we are receiving more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. That word opposes is the Greek word for a a sovereign king to send out all of his forces to do battle with the opposition. That's what God is doing when I am proud. So, Rob, I am putting my forces against you. But he gives grace to the humble. All of that same force when I am humbled now are behind me, carrying me to God. Nebuchadnezzar discovered that. He received grace. If you look a little bit further back, 
in Daniel, going back to verse 30, and the king answered, this was the point when he was humbled. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Sounds a lot like Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12. Verses 12 through 15, doesn't it? I will ascend to the throne. I will be above the Most High God. I could go through the Ten Commandments and I can show us all how we have all failed in all of them. But all I have to do is ask, has any of us ever been proud? Have we ever had pride? It's the root at every sin. Every sin starts with I. So Rob, you can't spell. No, but it says I will, I want. It's pride. And sometimes we even come to God in our Christian faith proudly that I accepted Jesus. I made him Lord of my life. No, he is Lord of your life. Do you embrace that? Do you recognize that? Are you willing to bow before him and say, whatever you ask, I I, I will do for you? Grace kills everything in us that we think is praiseworthy. Anything which we think earns us merit favor before a holy God. That's what grace does. That's why grace offends. It offends my flesh. It says, the best that I have to bring isn't going to do it. In my own strength. We bring nothing to God but our sin. He'll take that. That's what he came to rescue us from not the sin itself not even the penalty of the sin he came to rescue us from himself he says the wages of sin is death death is eternal death we think of separation from god in in hell as being that god's up there and i'm down here but if there was a couple up front here who were separated married watching their daughter play at a piano recital We'd say that they're separated, but they're sitting right next to each other. How can they be separated? They're talking about a relationship there. God is in hell. That's what makes hell so hellish for those who are there. He says, where can you go that I am not there? You go down to Sheol, down to the grave, I am there. People think that hell is going to be a big party that Satan is in charge of somehow down there. Satan is suffering the worst hell of anyone when he is locked up and thrown into the pit of flames. And God is there, and that's what makes it so hellish for them. When he says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is not an option for those in hell or heaven. It's just whether we do it willingly, joyfully, because he has redeemed us, because he has rescued us, or whether we do it against our will. Martin Luther said, when God is about to justify a man, he damns him. Whom he would also make alive, he must first kill. In other words, God brings us to the end of ourselves. I stop trying in my own effort. C.S. Lewis said something similar, just a little more quotable. God doesn't want to kill or hurt you. He wants to kill you. That doesn't sound like the God we've often preached, is it? He doesn't want to hurt you. He wants to kill you so he can make you born again. So he can make you into whom you were created to be. We, we see this before going to the warning. We, we see this where, where Paul calls out, it is no longer I who live. Right? I've been crucified with Christ. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who died and set me free. So there is a new identity in that being made alive. And it all comes because of a warning that we're given to repent, to turn. Grace offends. And before Nebuchadnezzar is brought to the end of himself, he is given a gracious warning. Did you see it when Paul was reading from Daniel himself? He says, therefore, O king, after he gives him the interpretation, this dream is about you and it's not good. All right, God, this one who is coming down from heaven, is going to cut you to shreds. And he's going to have you live like this for seven years. You're going to have a psychotic break. You're going to think you are a cow. But he says, O O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be lengthening of, of your prosperity. Do you hear Daniel pleading with him? Please break off your sins. God graciously waited an entire year for Nebuchadnezzar to do that. It said 12 months later, he's out on the top of his house looking at all that he has done. Look at, look at what I've built. God waited a full year. How long has God been waiting for you? How long? Nebuchadnezzar did not heed the warning. That slide is messed up. (laughs) That's what happened when uh, not everything sinks. Fortunately, I have notes when things go awry. What it said there is uh, Acts 17, verse 30 through 31. It reads this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands... All people everywhere to repent. The king ignored the warning. Will you? Will you ignore the warning? God commands all people everywhere to repent. If you are a person, that includes you. If you are somewhere, that includes you. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because, why? He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And to this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is that man we're talking about? It is Jesus. Grace in redeeming action. He is commanding us now to turn away from our sin and turn to him in faith and trust him that we might be saved. That is grace. What do we lose when we come to Christ? We lose our pride. You see the illustration there of this man hanging on to a branch. Another hand within reach. He could reach that, but not with the hand that's holding on to the branch. He has to let go of something and reach up with his other hand. He has to let go of his pride. If you are not humbled, you will not see a need to be saved. You won't see a need for a Savior. God only saves those who recognize their sin before him. In Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way of His wrath. Is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. 
Kiss the sun today, right now, in, in, in your mind. Recognize, as Martin Luther called himself, that he saw himself as nothing but a rotting bag of maggots. That's how he saw himself. That's a good start. See yourself before a holy God, apart from Christ, as who you are. He said, but, but don't even non-Christians do good things? Don't they give to charities? Don't they help save baby seals and snow leopards and, and give to charities to help people in Haiti? Yes, they do. Doesn't God count that? He does. In Isaiah 64, 6, he counts it as polluted garments. He says, even your righteous deeds I consider polluted garments. That word polluted garments is the Hebrew word for a bloody cloth. It's the same word used for a menstrual rag. Are we offended yet? That's God. That's his word using that term, not me. As Vodi Bauckham says, don't get mad at me. I didn't write the mail, I'm just delivering it. That's how he sees our righteous deeds. But doesn't God love baby seals being protected? Doesn't he love people in Haiti receiving aid? Yes, he does. He doesn't like it when we offer that to him as a reason for why we should gain some kind of merit to him. That would be like bribing the judge. I washed your car. Could you now cancel out my rape and murder charge? Is clean cars a good thing? Yeah, it's good to wash cars. But to offer it in exchange for what is owed of rape and murder? Now you're also now guilty of bribing the judge. That's why it is considered by God to be a filthy rag. To him, it's, it's a polluted garment. We look at Nebuchadnezzar again in, in James 4. It says, but he gives more grace. And we see this grace extended. That God gave grace in Nebuchadnezzar by even giving him the dream. He could have done all this without the dream. He could have just sent him out on the back 40, on his hands and knees, ending up like Howard Hughes in his, in his own room of just hair growing and nails growing and being reduced to nothing for seven years. But he gave him a dream first. Then he sent him a man to interpret his dream. More grace. But grace goes even further back. And this one is going to be hard for many of us. It's hard for me. Isn't it even grace by taking four Hebrew boys and ripping them out of their land and carrying them off captive. And they were most likely castrated because they were in the king's court. But Rob, that's, that's terrible. It is terrible. Absolutely it's terrible. Slavery is wrong. But is it, is it possible that God is able to use the sin he hates to accomplish the plan he loves? Is it possible that what you are going through in your life right now, as terrible as it is, is for a a bigger purpose? That it, it may not even be for your blessing. It may be for a pagan king. A megalomaniacal, masticating monarch. took me all week to practice that. Could it be that your life is meant to be an instrument of grace for someone else? That God would be able to use us 
in the life of someone else to point them to the one true God. That they would no longer walk, that is, live in pride, but be humbled and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Would that be worth it? No matter what it is we are going through, and I know some of us are going through some terrible stuff, but could that be the reason? You see, grace is a terrible thing, and this is something that my son wrote on a blog site that he wrote entitled Rage. And when I read this, I realized, well, that's going to change my sermon. And that's when I started down understanding that grace is offending. Grace offends. He says, grace is a terrible thing. It means having nothing with which to commend ourselves, no remaining shred of dignity or effort. It demands we abandon previous achievements, values, motivation. It takes everything. Only later are we able to see that what we lost was not worth having, a bundle of false narratives failing to deliver what they promised. And what we gained is immeasurable and eternal. This is simultaneously the hardest and the easiest choice we could ever make. I have to let go of me. And I have to reach out with an empty hand and say, God, save me. I have been trying to do this on my own for 40 years. And I can't do it. That was my prayer. Would you save me? And he does. He's that that gracious of a God. Another messed up slide. Here we see how grace offends. Robert Kennedy was in Indianapolis on an evening campaigning for the White House. When he received news, he was about ready to go into an area of Indianapolis and the police, uh, it was a predominantly black neighborhood, and the police who were with him said, um, you go in there, you go on your own. And so he went by himself with just his campaign team. He was about ready to step onto the back of a flatbed truck when someone informed him that Martin Luther King Jr. had just been gunned down. And he said, he was friends with Martin Luther King Jr., and he said, um, do the rest of the people know this? And this is before the day of having news in your hand, and he Said, um, they said, no, they don't. They would hear it first from you. He scraps his campaign speech, gets up on the back of the flatbed, shares with them the news that Martin Luther King Jr. Was just, was just shot and killed. And you can hear the audible gasp from the crowd. You can go to NPR and just type that in, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s speech on Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, and you can hear the actual speech. During the speech, he quotes a Greek, ancient Greek poet. Turn to my notes here and get that. Is Aeschylus. And he reads this poem by Aeschylus. He says, Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop, almost like torture, right? This dripping from pain against our hearts, he says. Drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. Aeschylus, never heard of him. 
Robert Kennedy, a liberal Democrat, quoting about the awful grace of God. Is it possible that he knows something about grace that we don't? The awful grace of God. God, I would have never prayed for this situation in a million years, and yet you are using exactly this to bring me or someone that I love to themselves. It is more profitable to be in the house of mourning than in the house of folly, said Solomon. In other words, people will address their own mortality at a funeral than they will at a comedy club. And we got to see that just a couple Saturdays ago, not yesterday, but the one before, where they got to hear of eternity. And Robert Kennedy shares that. And the reason why these two markers are up, if you go down to King Park there on 17th Street and Broadway, you'll see this marker, and on both sides is written, about the speech is that Indianapolis was graciously spared but no other metropolitan city in the nation was spared on that night as people in pain felt entitled, felt right to cause violence and burn businesses and burn police cruisers and flip them over. Indianapolis knew no violence that night. People's entitlement was offended by a man who got up and read a a Greek poem on grace. No, it was what he did before that. He said, I know the pain you're feeling because I've had a family member who was gunned down by a white man. We all knew who he was talking about. And in that moment, he wasn't talking at them. He wasn't campaigning for an office. He was communicating to them graciously empathizing with them their hurt. I know what you're going through. I've had something like that happen to me. And immediately they all looked and said, if he can show up here and not be entitled to lashing out in violence against someone else, then maybe there's something I can go home in my hurt. I can go home in my hurt and respond graciously. That's why that's, that sign is up. Second point, Grace Works in the book True Faced is one book that I've been reading along with um, Jerry Bridges' Discipline of Grace and Transforming Grace. The chapter is called Grace Works. How does grace resolve our sin issues? And it gives five points right here. We're not going to go through them all, but you can see this. Humility attracts grace. That's Look at the verbs, attracting. Grace changes our life's focus. No longer am I focused on myself, but focused on others. Grace lets God handle my sin instead of me managing my sin. Grace melts masks. I no longer have to live the hypocrite. I can live like who I am. Grace changes how we treat each other and our sin issues. So how do we reconcile Paul and James, right? The big question. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved... Not a result of works. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He just shot my next sola by faith alone. Not by faith alone. What's going on? Well, the good news is it's written by the, it's authored by the same Holy Spirit working through both of these men. So it can't be in contradiction. What we see happening here, Sir Charles Spurgeon, when asked, uh, was asked often how he reconciled these two truths. The two truths he was being asked about was sovereign election and free will, not about grace and works. Those are bigger than even this. He was asked, how do you reconcile 
these two truths of sovereign election and free will. He says, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. They're not at war with each other. Same thing with James and Paul. Really quickly, you'll see that what Paul is doing in Ephesians, is he's talking about the roots of salvation. The cause for our salvation is by grace. James is pointing to the fruit of salvation. You will know them by their fruits. It's a result of being saved. In other words, we, we see salvation uh, positionally by Paul in a moment that you are justified freely, justified by faith. James is looking at it from a perspective of man. I can't see that. How do I know that a husband loves his wife? He says he does, but men lie. Oh, I see it by his actions. I see it by his works. James is looking at it from man's perspective. That's the difference between the two. James is also in that passage describing two kinds of faith. He's describing dead faith and he's describing living faith. In James 2.17 he says, So also by itself faith, uh, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a dead faith. That's not going to save you. Dead faith will not save you. Faith was active. This is in James 2.22. is active. It's, it's growing. It's along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Completed, mature, perfecting. That's a living faith. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In James, that's referring to the dead faith. That dead faith can't save him. So also faith, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's describing dead faith versus living faith. Here we see in Hebrews chapter 10, But my righteous one shall live by faith. This is sola fide. This is where we get the definition for faith alone. What is faith? He shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and, pres- and preserve our souls. And here's the definition of Romans 11.1. 1. We all know this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some translations, assurance is confidence. Uh, conviction is evidence. Things that we can look to that cause us to believe in, hope, trust in that which we can't see. Acronym for faith, similar to grace. One, this one I heard from Dick Good when we were first attending Harbor Shores and Dick and Ursula had us over dinner and he gave us this acronym. said, faith is forsaking all, I trust him. That's another good acronym. It's a good way of recognizing what it is. It is actually turning my back on everything else, anything else. There you see the grace working of killing my, my pride, my flesh, and trusting in him alone. It's not blind faith, but it's a faith that sees only Jesus in that moment. A story of it, and it's one of these others that I'll fill in for you. What can we learn about faith from a French tightrope walker and his agent? Many of you know the story of Charles Blondin. He was the first man to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. You all know the story. Maybe you've heard of even how he did many things. He did it multiple times that day. He was the first man to do it. He did it by riding a bicycle. He cooked an omelet. He lowered a rope down, brought up a bottle of champagne, toasted the people on both sides. He did somersaults. He, he went out on a bike, I mentioned, and, and then also wheeled a wheelbarrow. And he got to the side again and says, how many believe that I can do it again? And the crowds on both sides, American and Canadian sides, are screaming and cheering, yes, yes, we believe. And you know the line, right? Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? No, I I believe you could do it. But do you believe it enough that you would be willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Forsaking all, trust 
this. And Dick told that story, and I thought, wow, that's a fascinating story. I'm going to go look it up. And I discovered it is absolutely true. But it's better than that. A year later, almost to the date, two weeks before the anniversary of him crossing, he would go and one man would trust him enough to put his life in his hands. You see the picture there on the back. That's his agent, Harry Colkert. He didn't trust the wheelbarrow. He trusted Charles. He would, would not trust the wheelbarrow. <laughs> can't trust those things. You don't know if that wheel's coming off. He got on his back, and they went across. And before stepping onto the rope, listen to these words. This is almost better than getting in the wheelbarrow. Charles Blondin said to Harry, Harry, look up. You are no longer Colkert. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be part of me, mind, body, and soul. Forsaking all, I trust him. If I sway, he said, you sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. Jesus is telling us the same thing. Cling to me. Look up. Your identity is now my identity. Forsaking all, I trust him. The spark faith ignites. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. There's a lot of debate. What is the it? Is it it saving faith? Is it grace? Is it salvation itself is the gift of God? In Romans 12.3 we see, For by grace, the grace given to me, I say to everyone, Paul speaking among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, or some translations allotted. God has assigned each faith. It's the same phrase that's used, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure, with the other one said according to the measure of Christ, the other one said according to the measure that God has allotted. Grace and faith are wrapped up together. It is almost as if they are one thing. Which is why when we go and look at that again, Ephesians 2, 8 and Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of your own doing. It, singular, is a gift, singular, of God. We can learn something from Dr. Seuss. One fish, two fish. Not two fishes. One fish. A singular word can represent two items. It, your faith, is a gift of God. Faith ignites us to believe. How much faith does one need to be saved? Three close friends of mine recently had their dads die, all within the last month. They had three faiths. Ray had a living faith that was lived out. You could see fruits of it. Don was raised, a Jewish man raised and had a deathbed conversion, literally. Bill, his dad, died this past week, raised Roman Catholic, didn't have an opportunity to talk with him in the hospital, could have hopefully prayed that he trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If he did, he receives all that Don did, all that Ray did. All the riches and righteousness are theirs. How much faith does it take to get saved? Mustard seed. There it is, actual size. There's a mountain, not actual size. We say to that mountain, go, and it has to go. It's not the size of our faith which saves us. It's the size of the one whom we have faith in. 
John Newton, we just sang his song, Amazing Grace. He said, when I was young, I was sure of many things. Now there are two things of which I am sure. One is that I am a miserable sinner. And the other is that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He is well taught who learns these two lessons. Are you a sinner? I have good news for you. You can be saved. You can be saved. No matter how great your sin is, Christ is a greater Savior than your sin. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The truth is, everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. Even the non-believer is trusting in something. Even if it's trusting in nothing. I don't believe in anything. You believe that? That's faith. You are trusting in nothing. Even the demons believe. They just don't have a saving belief. They have a knowledge of, a belief of, but they don't have a saving belief. When you drive down the road, you're trusting that that driver stays on the other side of those lines. You're trusting in science. You're trusting in the government. You're trusting in something. All of us have faith. It's a question of what are we putting our faith in. Faith fuels our life. Is what we live by. And you see it there. Either you are trusting in other things or you are trusting in the one who holds all things. If that car crosses the double yellow lines and hits me, I'm trusting God had a reason for it. It may not even be for my benefit. It may be for somebody else's. If I get food poisoning, I'm trusting God had a reason for that. I'm not trusting in the cook. I'll tip him if it's good. But I'm not trusting him for that. Here we see, just wrapping up, all of these symbols that we used. The sufficiency of God in his word. Faith as a lion that offends. Uh, I'm sorry, grace that offends like a lion. Faith that ignites and fuels our life. Christ as the, the Passover lamb that was slain. And Christ as the, the king of kings. He is all of the five solas. We are not saved by grace or by our faith. It's like, wait a minute, I just unpreached my entire message. No, we are saved by Jesus as an act of grace through faith that he gave us. We are saved by Jesus. We started with Jesus. We want to end with Jesus. This is almost blasphemy. Jesus speaking, I in them and you, God, the Father in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even, that you loved them even as you love me. That's almost blasphemy. I wouldn't say it. I have to stop and be careful, make sure I'm quoting it right, that you loved them even as you love me. That God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. If Jesus didn't say it, I wouldn't. But he did. God loves you who are in Christ as much as he loves his own son. I have no idea what that's like. But I will spend the rest of my life trying to figure it out. So my encouragement to all of us is to recognize who you are. Live like who you are. You are his workmanship. If you are in Christ, you are like a masterpiece. That's what that word workmanship means. You are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, that we should live by faith in them. Let's live like who we are. As the worship team comes up, to close us in our final song of, of our worship time together.
I would encourage you, if you are here and are not saved, but have been convicted by the word of God to turn from your sin and turn to him, come up here right now and pray with me. Pray together. You can even just pray on your own. No one will bother you. But pray. Just pray to God. I trust you. I stop trusting anything else. Forsaking all, I trust him alone. And you will be saved. If you're the almost Christian who has heard all of this and realized that you never truly came to the end of yourself, I have good news for the almost Christian. You can be a Christian now by giving all to God. And for the believer, if there's any area that we need to reform, let us come and reform any area of our life that needs to be put in right alignment with God and his word for his glory, for Christ's reward, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me close in prayer and the music will start. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you have given us. We pray that the lamb who was slain would receive the full reward for his suffering. We pray all of this. All of this, God, for your glory, for our benefit, and the benefit and blessing of others. In Jesus' name, amen.